again, all you dads and dadpreneurs out there. It is Devo here for another episode of the Fearless Fathers Podcast, the growing dad podcast for you to break the generational traditions that no longer serve you so you can be a better dad to your kids and your families. I have another amazing guest with us on the show today. That's right. I'm giving Ryan a little bit more time off. He deserves it. He's he's so near and dear, but you know what? He's not worth it today, and that's perfectly fine. With me today, I have Johnny Serpilla. This man is a legend in the RV industry, owner in many businesses. He's the founder of Encourage LLC, which we're going to talk a lot about today, and the author of an amazing book, Life is Hard, But It'll Be Okay, The Power of Hope, Emerging Through Pain, and Learning to Live with Gratitude. Johnny, he retired at 50, but that doesn't matter because he repurposed himself when he started Encourage LLC. And even though he retired, this dude is still incredibly busy. He's a public speaker about repurposing your life, rebranding yourself, and going what's right because he did that when he was 50. He's a member on numerous boards, professional speaker like I talked about, communities, universities, managing your thoughts, leading yourself to productive choices, and framing each challenge in your life as an opportunity for self-reflection and growth. So obviously, when Johnny's team reached out to us and said, hey, we think we might have somebody for you, he pretty much filled the bill on the Fearless Fathers podcast. So we're going to be diving a lot into his mindset, how that reframes as a father of three grown children, and so, so much more on the podcast today. So, Johnny, I want to thank you for being on the show today, brother. It's an honor to have you, man. Well, Dave, thank you for having me. I love your show. I love the energy you put into it. Ryan, too. I love your banter back and forth. And you guys are a lot of fun to listen to. So thank you for having me. It's all right. I'm glad you're here. And you don't have to you don't have to encourage Ryan. It's okay. He's not here today. He probably won't listen <laughs> to the show. So don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, we got to so, make him listen. Uh, uh, sure, we'll go with that. We'll all go right. That. It's downloads, right? So I want to kick this off first and foremost, right off of the podcast. Toughest question of the day. You have three grown children. What is one of your funniest memories with one of your kids? Oh, man. Um, first of all, I love being a dad. So in my family, we have laughed a lot. One that comes to mind, um, a comment back from my daughter, Bella. Bella is 24 now. My kids, Bo is 26. Bella is 24. Stone is 22. I go back to when Bella liked a boy for the first time and um, she was 14 years old and uh, I picked her up at a boy's house. Um, there was a group of kids there and she came out with her friend and they were coming into my car and I just looked at her and I didn't like it. I just didn't like it a bit. My daughter is kind of coming of age. I could kind of tell that maybe something was happening here. And so she calls me out and she's like, dad, what's going on? And I said, no, honey, it's all good. No, I'm just, uh, let me take you back to your friend Grace's house and um, it's all good. So fast forwarding the next night, she says, hey, we got to talk. I said, what do we have to talk about? She said, um, I could tell the way you were looking at me last night, like I've done something wrong and I haven't. I've never liked a boy before. I've never kissed a boy before. And you're looking at me like I've done something wrong. And I said, you know, honey, this is new for dad and I'm sorry, um, you're right. I was having thoughts that I didn't like and uh, I didn't sleep well last night, but because I was thinking my, my anxious mind was wondering. And I said, this is new for dad with you liking a boy. I'm going to have a lot of rules and um, I'm going to be sitting down with him, kind of went through all these things and just said how hard this was for me. And she looked at me and she said, well, you know, dad, can only one of us act like a 14 year old girl in this scenario? 
And I said, all right. It it hurt, but it was fair because I was putting a lot of drama into this. And she just called me out that it's better off if only one of us is acting like a 14-year-old girl. Ooh, bring in the heat. Bella, bring in the heat. Burned you down. Oh, she did. Oh, how how did you recover from that? Honestly, because I don't even think I could recover. (laughs) You know what? What I learned to do with my kids, all three of them over the years, Dave, is I got really comfortable with admitting when I was wrong because, you know, I would tell them that and and my wife and I were strict. We had very high expectations for our kids. Uh, We were very good to our kids. But what we expected back from them in terms of honor and respect and making good choices and representing our family name right and all those things. As my parents said to me, we can't give you enough to make it an equal trade from what we expect back from you. So maybe a little bit of pressure you could see that as, or just a high standard. But I learned when I needed to apologize to my kids and um, when, when dad was wrong. And I said to them, you know, fortunately, you three are imperfect kids and God gave you to imperfect parents. And so we perfectly fit together as a group of imperfect people living together. And you're going to make mistakes and I'm going to make mistakes and your mom is, and we're going to make mistakes in parenting. And so, you know, that's kind of how I came back to them when they really caught me. And I wanted them to know, you can tell me when you think your dad's off base. And I'll tell you if I agree or not. And I, and I will genuinely step back and reflect because there is no job I take more seriously than you know, really leading the three of you to successful thoughts first in your own mind and self-love and self-respect. Matter of fact, I would always tell my boys that, you know, you and I, the three of us, we're going to teach Bella how to be treated by a man in her life uh, when she becomes an adult and when she's dating and when she's married. And fellas, um, I know you didn't sign up for this. Um, You're all born within less than four years, so it's a pretty tight group. And you didn't get the chance to vote (laughs) on if you play that role model male in your sister's life. But uh, you're going to do it. it. You're (laughs) going to do it. And uh, and they've done it beautifully. I mean, they were so good to their sister. And, you know, I was trying to raise a, a, a good dad in the future when when my boys were super young. And I think that's so important that you brought up and it's been like the recurring theme for the last couple of weeks is the fact admitting when you're wrong as a dad. I, I know growing up for myself, like my grandparents, they never admitted when they were wrong. It was always you're going to do it my way. There's no reason why I need to explain myself to you. And then that kind of bled into like my childhood where my parents were always like, nope, you're going to do it this way because I tell you it's going to be this way. And there's no reason. And even if you're wrong, it's kind of just going along with it. But so much so in the last few years. And I'm a big believer in that with my three-year-old son. When I do something wrong, I'm going to go right out to him. I'm going to apologize to a three and a half year old kid because I screwed up as a dad. I think that is one, you're you're checking your ego at the door and self-reflecting on what you just did and admitting like, hey, this is a little human. We're all human. You're imperfect. You have the best job in the world as a dad. But guess what? Nobody teaches you how to do this job. Nobody teaches you how to do it. And you have to stumble like a three-year-old in the dark after you drink a 12-pack of beer and be like, what did I just do with myself? But I absolutely agree. I, I think That's checking right. your ego at the door is, is the biggest, biggest thing that a lot of people have a problem with. Dave, you know, I think now that my kids are all out of college and they all three live in downtown Chicago, um, I think I'm qualified now at 55. I think I'm finally qualified to be a dad. 
Um, I think you know, now I've, I've really learned it. I've completed the process, if you will, of raising them into adulthood. And I've seen every stage of their life to this point. And now I think I could do a really good job if, <laughs> if, if I had another shot at it. But I, I think my wife, after 31 years, I think we, we should probably just be prepared Might for grandparenting okay. here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. That, that, That's the fun part of it, right? Because when you're that grandparent, you just get to do all the cool things that you never do with your kid. And they look at you like, why? You never did that with me. What? What? What, what did I do to deserve this? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out as you get older. Right? You go back to that old trend. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, I like to think that we did all those fun things like, you know, ice cream for breakfast kind of stuff mm-hmm. that if we, we we would be funky uh, at times. But – you know, that's a fine line, as you know, right now with your son. I mean, you know, you're you're going down a path of um, you want it, you want home to be fun. You want it to be a great environment. We created a home where we wanted all the kids' friends at our houses, especially those high school years, and, and we always wanted that, and and we had that, and we loved it, um, so that we could exa- see exactly who they're hanging around with. You know, that saying, you know, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Um, and, and so we wanted to know those kids really well. And when you do that, that means that, you know, for those years, my wife and I were not a dinner and a movie couple. Um, we didn't Mm. go out, um, because especially those high school years, we, we never made plans on the weekends because we needed to be ready. If the kids said, Oh, we decided to stay home tonight. We want so-and-so to come over. Cool. Let's do it. We'll, We'll cook. We'll order food, you know, you guys can hang downstairs, whatever, um, you know, pool. We had a basketball court inside our house. I mean, whatever it was, you know, we'll do all these fun things, but we're going to create that home uh, for them to be able to, you know, bring kids over. And if you, if you've got plans and you're focusing on yourself and granted, we are a little to that extreme. We just kind of said, you know, in these eight years of high school between the first and the last mm-hmm. finishing, this is this time where it's just all about them because they could have plans they get excluded from something. All of a sudden, they've got a pretty long face, and we don't want to be. Hey, we'll see you. We're going out, and, uh, and, and yeah, bye, guys. And their their plans just canceled, and they're stuck home alone. So you know, it it worked for us to do it that way and just prioritize them because right now, you know, it's been four years that we've been empty nesters. I mean, it's every night is date night. You know, we knew we knew this time in life would come, and fortunately, our health has been good to to get it to this point. And at fifty one, we were empty nesters, and 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 now it's back to us. And I think that's really important that you brought that up about the high school about the high school years because I remember myself. You know, I'm only thirty two right now, but I remember being a being a teen and my parents going out and they're like, "All right, bye. You're gonna have friends over. Okay, cool." But a lot of I I, I still remember this where a lot of the times where you kind of feel resented or you don't want to hang out with your parents all that much because you're that teenager and you want to kind of get your own. And granted, my mom always made like a very welcoming and homing environment for my friends to come over and, and, you know, have a good time with. But it always brought me back to that point of so many of my friends didn't have that. So many of my friends didn't have the opportunity. Now that I'm older, I realize this to have that loving home, to have that welcoming home. It was always, oh, just kind of come and go as you please. Mom and dad are never home. Or they're home and everybody's drinking and having a good time. But I, I feel like when you're telling me that story, I feel like that might have saved a lot of your friends' kids from actually knowing what a loving home is and kind of giving them an idea about what what an actual home base could be. In. You know, that that's true. I mean, we, we are all, you know, that concept, it takes a village, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we loved being that open village ready for whoever needed us at whatever time. 
And while generally um, our kids all came from our kids' friends all came from stable homes. Not all of them did, but most of them did. But even inside those stable homes, there could be a different view of relationship between mom and dad. Right. Maybe, you know, more love being shown, more arguing, all those things. And I think what uh, we tried to show our kids' <clears throat> friends is that, you know, we do have these high standards and we have them for our kids' friends as well. And when they're with us, they're family. You, you can sleep here. You can stay here a week. I don't care how long you stay. Where we go to eat, you come with us. We'll do whatever. But we're going to know each other. You know, we had each, we Snapchat each other. Even my, my kids' <laughs> fraternity brothers and sorority sisters, you know, my wife and I have, you know, friendships with. We have our own friendships with them. And so what's funny is that my, my kids said in college, you know, the parents or the, their friends thought that we were the cool parents. And they kind of <laughs> laughed because they're like, man, you guys were so strict. But how did all of our friends seem to like you guys? <laughs> and, and, you know, we genuinely liked all these kids. They were good kids. And you're exactly right. One of my uh, son, my youngest son, Stone, just graduated from college. And he had this awesome friend of his from college say to me at graduation, thanked me for the way. I engaged with him since freshman year uh, wow. because he was not familiar with that, with a dad ever doing that before. And uh, this was an awesome kid that came from a rough background as he described it to me. And I had no idea of that. My son never told me that. Um, it was just me loving the kid and interacting with him. And so you're right. That as a village, you know, when we, we open up shop as a village and when you have kids coming in and out of your house, you're showing them how it should be done, how it could be done, or how it shouldn't be done. That, that's one of the biggest takeaways I feel for the episode. And we're obviously going to dig a lot deeper into like reframing your mindset because you just did that a few years ago. But that, that's a big takeaway for you dads out there right now who have these – may have these kids in these teenage years or you're getting to that point. Building that village and building that level of trust and understanding and like being genuine – I think being genuine is the big takeaway on that is – you know, loving these other friends, you know, your kids' friends as your own and just building that hut. Because I remember, you know, I've talked about it on the show. My my family life was, to some, a disaster. Split between two parents on an everyday basis. I always saw fighting and arguing. And then when I met my wife's family, it was this loving, come together, you know, just complete bonding, like unconditional love. And I'm like, what is this? It absolutely blew my mind in my 20s. I'm like, I don't understand this concept. So I, I think that's a huge takeaway. And I relate with that a lot personally because it, it, it affects me so deeply when I hear stories like that. And, and you hear the level of impact that other people have when you don't even realize that you're doing it. Johnny, I love it. I absolutely love it, man. Well, I'm happy for you now, Dave, that that's what you have. And that's what you're creating in your home. And, you know, I can tell you that your son will be watching the way you and your wife interact, just like you did, right? I've been blessed in, in what we'll talk about a little bit later. I mean, because of what happened to us uh, 27 years ago, my wife and I, our relationship, I'm going to call it pretty close to ideal or perfect because we've been through such darkness together that we've spent every day trying to make each other happy. And so our kids say we kind of mess them up because um, <laughs> our relationship ideal is, is so good. And it's not because our life has been so great. It's really because it's been so hard at times that what mattered most is my wife to me is her feeling secure and happy and valued and appreciated. And, and, and I knew that I was teaching my boys 
how to treat their future wife. Um, and my wife was teaching Bella how to treat her future husband by the way, the kindness that she shows me and the kindness that I show her. So, you know, we kind of have this joke that, you know, we'd be driving in the car and she'd say, where do you want to go to dinner, hon? And I'd say, let's go here. And she's like, no, I don't want to go there. And the kids in the backseat were like, stop fighting. Stop. stop." And we look at each other. We're like, oh man, we've really messed these three little we, dudes up we're like we really guys, that's not fighting <laughs> yeah that, that is sorry. really the high standard oh that wasn't a fight it's just mom and i trying <laughs> to decide where to go eat kids trust me that's going to be the fight for the rest of your life believe me when i tell you <laughs> that's right so that's i want right. to talk about this we talked about this at the beginning of the episode on how you've reframed your mindset at the age of 50 and i think that's a big big proponent for a lot of dads especially dads out there who are in this stage or they have the old hard knocks family lifestyle where it's I'm built this way. I'm rugged. I'm not going to rebrand who I am because I'm old and I'm, I'm just going to do as I want to do. So can you take us through where it came from on why you felt the repurposing of who you were and kind of how that started? Sure. Sure. So, um, it's going to go back a bit here, but, um, so I was raised, my family, uh, all came from Italy. So all my grandparents are from Italy and my dad grew up as a first generation Italian, my mom as well. And, you know, really very, very humble beginnings. And my dad was a pioneer in the RV industry. So he was one of the first dealers in the 1950s, uh, built a, a very sizable, uh, dealership that, uh, after college, I moved to Chicago and, was working there until my dad called about a year and a half later and said, I need you at home. It's time to come home and, and work in the family business. Of course, I was born and raised in the business and then did every job in the dealership. My dad even picked my major. Um, he said, Johnny, you're going to be an accounting major. Um, I want you to understand uh, the books and uh, know that well. Um, he always said that you know the profit and loss statement, the balance sheet, the numbers, it's the language of business is accounting. And so you're not going to be an accountant, but you're going to know the numbers. And I said, okay, pops, I was a, good with math. And so my dad picked my major and off I went. Later, when I went back to grad school, I, I chose what I wanted to do there. I was 31 and I, I got a, a master's in organizational behavioral management, um, which I thought would help me run my company. And then at 36, I sold my family business, my dealership to um, Camping World, which was just getting started at the time. So I was one of the first acquisitions and Camping World was a roll-up st strategy to go out and buy RV dealerships, family businesses across the country. I was super blessed to get to the top of that organization and I was in the number two seat for a long time and loved it. We grew it. We had north of 10,000 employees, you know, $4 billion in revenue and I was fulfilling my version of my dad's dream of entrepreneurship. Um, and so my dad made his imprint in the RV industry as one of the first dealers. I made mine as being part of this roll-up strategy and being blessed to serve with other really, really talented executives and help lead uh, Camping World. And so for me, at 50 is when we had our IPO. And the company went public. And it was the day that I was on the New York Stock Exchange floor. I mean, kind of the pinnacle wow. of my career uh, was my 50th birthday. We're on the stock exchange floor. We had worked for this for 15 years for this big monumental, you know, economic event as well as career milestone. And yeah. God was just putting on my heart, Dave, uh, it's time to go. 
And so I kept hearing that. And I left the stock exchange floor six hours earlier for my flight at LaGuardia Airport. Still action was going on and I was just hearing you got to go. And so I get to the airport and I'm, you know, five hours early for a flight. It was on a Friday. So I thought, you know, my son was a high school quarterback thinking, you know, maybe it's just I'm anxious about getting home in time to see Stone um, play tonight. And then it hit me. It was, it's not that I got to go to get home, which I always love getting home if I was on a business trip, but it's go from this phase of my life. And I realized that I had fulfilled my purpose, not only in that industry, but in that company. I had done all that I wanted to do. Um, I felt that it was time to now, and maybe a little bit of it was my 50th birthday, little midlife crisis, later <laughs> midlife crisis, um, <laughs> that I never really chose to do, you know, what is it that Johnny wants to do? And mm. my dad got sick with cancer in his 50s, and he died when I was in my 30s. And I thought, you know, there's stuff that I want to do. And I don't know exactly what that is, but I know that I want to be able to help people more significantly. I had 10,000 employees. Um, and, and so I felt I, I saw leadership on a large scale. And as a group, we all led these amazing people. I really knew that there is a lot of responsibility, Dave, that comes with being a president, comes with being a vice president, a, a supervisor, a boss, uh, define it in any title, director, manager, whatever it is. And I recognized that I want to do more to influence that. And so because of what I write about in the book, life is hard, but I'll be okay. I learned through our psychologist at the time of, of those tragedies that we were living through that the idea of cognitive reframing and taking thoughts that we have. And I'm an anxious guy. I have anxiety. Um, I worry about everything. I worry about people around me. I worry about my companies. I worry about uh, the teams that I work with, uh, friends and family. I'm just a warrior by nature. And, and so for me, it was, how do I take these anxious thoughts and, and use them for good? And, and I had to learn how to reframe them. And so 27 years ago, we learned how to do that. And then at 50, I said, okay, it's, it's halftime here. It's a new season of life coming. And so what am I going to do now? And now uh, I, I've started Encourage, which that comes from the Bible verse uh, from Thessalonians 5.11. So encourage one another and lift each other up just mm -hmm. as you were doing. And I thought, you know, I do do that. I do like to encourage people. I do like to lift them up. I always thought as an employer, my job was to make my team successful. That's what I came to work every day to do is to build success around me and, and grow other people's careers. That's an awesome, huge responsibility. And so with that, it, it put me in this frame of mind of, okay, now let's go do this differently. And so now at Encourage, what I do is I go out and invest in businesses um, that I think are going to drive meaningful change, do a lot of public speaking. Of course, I've written a book that we're talking about. And I am taking the experience that I have in leadership. I do a lot of board work. I'm on the board of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, super cool gig, um, a public company, other Ooh. private companies. And, you know, really go out and try to make a difference. You've done one thing that not a lot of people have done on this show, Johnny. Can I tell you what that is? What's left that? Me, you left me damn near speechless, man. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> that story. Guys, if you're listening to that and listening to what Johnny had to say, take that in. Pause this. Rewind it. Listen to it six, seven, eight times because I took so many notes and so much out of that in the last few minutes. 
I mean, from the fact that your dad was the pioneer in RVing industry in the 50s, starting an entrepreneurial journey, he picked your major. I don't know how many dads out there or parents now that would actually pick your major went into camping world and you you were part of that business and part of building something that was so incredible. And just the fact alone that you were on the New York Stock Exchange on your 50th birthday for your IPO, which most people, most entrepreneurs themselves, myself included, could never even think of, could never even begin to imagine. And during all of that, during all that accumulation over the last 27 plus years, you just kept having this thought in your mind of, I need to just let go. And it wasn't like you said, going to see your to see Stone play football. It wasn't just to get home from a business trip. It was the fact that you did all of this in 27 years. And you're 50 years old on your 50th birthday. And you're like, I could do more. Like most people would dream of having your life. Would, would dream of being able to start a business. And just even maybe like myself as a business owner, try and just build a little bit deeper but you got to the number two spot. You did it all. And you're like, I, I still have more to give to this world. And I think that is so, 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 so imperative of the fact that no matter if you're 27, 32, 50, 70, 90, you can always reframe and repurpose your mindset and who you are to give more to others. What's to say that you could have been in camping world and you could have been another 10, 15 years from now and you could have been that number one spot and got to the top and finally made it. But what would that have made you? And that's what I feel a lot of people miss out on. Yeah. You know, for me, what was hard was walking away from something that I, that I loved. Didn't hate it. I loved it. Um, we were really achieving all the great things that we wanted to achieve. Uh, worked with great people around me something was telling me it's it's time to go and and sure there's frustrations in 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 large corporate america but i was in a good position where i could influence a lot of that and in some cases that i couldn't i was able to influence to the best of my ability but you know dave there is stages of life and i'm i'm a believer in seeking out each of those changes i love the the phrase seek to understand and I needed to seek to understand why I felt some unrest. Why did I felt that there was more for me to do when it was at a financial height for me? It was at a leadership height for me. Um, and, and yet it was time to, to step away. And, and I think that I recognized that I didn't want to get to a point where I said, I wish I would have done more. And I, I, I chose the tough, tough way, which was to leave. Uh, the easy way was to stay and do what I'm doing in an industry that I've worked in, you know, for so long that I know inside and out and have developed great relationships. Or I can kind of do something a little scary and go start investing in new businesses and <clears throat> creating new opportunities. I'm doing that today now with family um, and, and starting another roll-up strategy of Amazon businesses. And our company is called Society Brands. And I'm wow. doing that with my two nephews, my son, another partner of mine from a med tech board uh, that I brought into this organization. And we're going out and buying Amazon businesses and rolling them up into a, a, a pretty large company that we've uh, amassed already. And 
playing a different role. I'm a partner uh, in the business, but I'm on the board now. And so wow. uh, the the younger guys are are doing the leadership, and it's awesome to see the second generation, you know, working so well together. I, I feel like that's a purpose that I have now. Um, you know, my found or my one of my partners in that business, um, Sean Doherty, was the founder of Mophie, the phone chargers. I'm okay. sure you've yeah. used yeah. those and had her products and she sold that a few years back and you know she was looking for her reinvention right and so she's incredible in the product space and so i'm really blessed that my son gets to work with her my nephews get to work with her uh, they are providing great leadership uh in this company and you know i see what they're doing and and the connection of the new generation working together it's really meaningful me and so i'm super proud of my two nephews that are like sons to me. Um, I'm super proud of, of of my son in the business and the others that we've brought in that are really making a difference. And the, and to the businesses that entrusted us to sell to us, and now they join our team and they get to be part of this bigger company. You know, I'm honored by the fact that they trust us with their brand um, to partner with us now to grow that brand and make it bigger. And sure, it's a nice financial event for them, but even better and beyond that, it's they get to be part of something bigger. And so, you know, I get excited about a new season of life. I, I love your ideology about leadership and wanting to build leadership and being in the military for 15 years and having to be in charge of, you know, not 10,000 people, but 10 soldiers and entrusting they're entrusting me with their life and completing our missions I, i've grown to love different leadership styles and i've seen it as an employee working for the federal government working at so many different jobs that leadership will literally make or break an entire employee's job experience i mean so many so many people out there are like i'm the leader i'm in the number two spot so i'm gonna sit here for as long as i can and i'm gonna make sure nobody can move up and grow and what you've been doing, Johnny, I mean, is you've been doing what I what I like to call my leadership strategy of mentoring, fostering, and growing the next level of leaders. Because 10, 15 years from that point, you're not going to be there. You decided to walk away at 50. You easily could have sat there and said, nope, I'm standing firm on my decision to stay here forever. You're going to sit below. And I'm just not going to mentor and grow you. And I feel like that's such a wrong avenue for so many leaders to take in today's society. Well, I'll tell you first, I got to thank you, Dave, for your service. Um, that's, that is incredible for your service. I thank you. Um, and I'll tell you, if any of the military men and women that I have hired over the years, I've been blown away by the, the discipline, the integrity, um, almost in some cases, uh, one comes to mind that had such, uh, with a Navy background, and I worked with him for decades, and I love this man. He had such a intense reverence for lines of authority that I had to push him to call me out when he thought I was wrong. It just, <laughs> he couldn't do it because, you know, you just didn't show that disrespect and you didn't. And I right. was like, no, right. come on, Brock. Um, you're smarter than me. You, you know, this, you know, you got to tell me, Johnny, that's just crap. Tell me I suck. Tell me yeah. I suck, please. It's, all, it's okay because this isn't all about me. You know, we're he, Brock had about four thousand employees himself. I mean, we wow. needed to make sure that you know we were doing the right things, and so his military training made him number one an incredible employee. So I have to say thank you for that. Thank you. Um, you know, the, the next thought is, 
you know, when I think about that responsibility that it is to lead, number one, so many people that are trying to lead others don't know how to lead their own life first. And John Maxwell teaches us that the hardest person to lead is yourself. And and I love the thought leader that he is in the leadership space. Uh, I've read so much of John Maxwell's books, and I learned so much there because you know, I see so many times people that are trying to lead others and, and their life is a train wreck, meaning that they make bad choice after bad choice, whether it's relationship choices, word choices that uh, hurt relationships, negotiation choices um, in terms of the way that they create hardships with others, the way that they interact, and then they're leading people. And, and you know, that's dangerous because you're, you're training and leading people to go down the wrong path that you're down. And there's a principle there that, you know, be careful who you follow, right, as a leader, because you might tag yourself onto somebody that, who knows, maybe I'm thinking that guy or gal's on their way out because of their poor leadership. And a new young hire comes in and thinks, oh, I identify with that. I see that. My dad told me that bosses are meant to berate you and bring you down. And that's what leaders do. And so Mm -hmm. I'm going to do that when I get in that spot. And, you know, that's dangerous. Um, So, when I'm on the university campuses talking to young people, I, I talk to them about be careful who you follow because you might think that it's cool that you see this leader that is publicly demeaning others um, and trash talking them. And maybe you enjoy that a little bit. Maybe you think it's a little fun to hear those stories. Yeah. And, and sure, maybe it could be to hear a little story and an insight. And wow, I didn't think the senior execs would talk that way. And then they do and they're unprofessional and they share that with you. And you start emulating that. Well, you end up getting fired for that stuff, right? And so when I see young people, you know, I say, you got to really follow someone that's the best version of yourself, not who you might, might most likely identify with. Because your first year out of college, your first job, you know, you're not fully who your brand is going to represent yet for the future. And you might have some of your own flaws that you haven't yet identified witness or someone's pointed out to you and then you you tag yourself to someone just like you maybe you're not on a good path all right so you got to be careful with that that's a big thing to take away on that i i remember for myself when i first became a leader in the military i just got my sergeant stripes i was just off a of deployment i was getting ready to lead our guys into field artillery work and i remember being like you said if I can't lead myself, how am I going to lead these soldiers? And I was in charge of 10 to 15 soldiers at this point. And I just remember trying to go out there and trying to train them and not knowing the information and not being even true to myself. It's like, oh, you need to do this. You need to do this. Because I saw other leaders that were rock hard. And these guys were friends of mine for years before I got promoted. And what that really had to teach me, I remember drill after drill after drill for about two years. I was just so stressed. And so broken down and so beaten because I was not berating my soldiers, but I was berating myself. And I feel a lot of people don't take that step back to re-image or at least look at who they are. What I was doing was I was emulating micromanagerial bosses that I had that I hated. I absolutely hated. But that was the leadership that I had at the time. And I really had to take a step back and be like, leadership is not about what you know. It's about being able to grow and mentor others and say, hey, listen, I suck at this. I know you're rock solid at what you can do. You're going to train me just like I'm going to train you in other ways. 
And when I made that shift, I mean, that was just a, it was a big shift in the overall scale. How did you see it, Dave? How did you see within yourself that you were following in the, in the footsteps of those that you did not admire as a boss? I, I just, I just remember, I, I, I forget the day, but it was after a drill week and I'm like, what am I doing? I, I always talk to myself because I'm big anxiety too. I'm always worrying about different things. And my anxiety was that you're a failure. You're not mentally. You have never been meant to be a leader since the time you were seven years old. You always followed. You're not meant for this. What are you doing? You took a promotion. What, is, what the hell's wrong with you, man? And I remember berating myself so much that I'm like, you know what? I had to go back and I had to remember my first job working at a gas station deli at 16 years old. And my boss hated me. And I only got $6 an hour before minimum wage was even $7.25. And I was working six days a week, eight hours a day at 16 years old. I absolutely hated it. They always made me garbage. And then I remember my serving job. And then I'm like, I'm going through all these stages. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be the change I want to see as a leader. I'm going to be able to do what I can to do to mentor and grow others so they could take my spot one day. And it was at that point. It, it was at that point. And if you're listening to this, I think this goes for family as well as job placement. If you're at that point, don't be afraid to say, hey, listen, I suck at this. I was, I'm, a, I'm an army section chief in a field artillery unit to fire live artillery rounds 20,000 meters across the sky. All right. I have this philosophy that if you go in and you have a good time in a high pressure job and you're just like, you know, what, we're going to have fun with it. We're going to do fun. I know you're, you're rock solid in your job. You're rock solid in your job. As a leader, you don't need to know everything. You just need to know how to delegate and you need to know the basic responsibilities of what it is that person needs to do to accomplish their mission. And guess what? They're going to teach you more along the way. And you'll be like, damn, I never knew that. And that that's perfectly okay. And I feel as a leader, you need to know that in your family life. Like you said, leaving your checking your ego at the door in the very beginning. I checked my ego at the door. I'm not afraid to say, hey, I apologize for messing up. I screwed up, but we're going to learn from this and we're going to grow. All right. I love that. I love that. And you know, when you were talking, it reminded me of, of a principle that I lecture about, which is that insecurity is the source of all workplace conflict. And so you had insecurities in yourself as a leader, right? And thinking back to your previous leaders and questioning yourself if you have it in you to do this right now and that, that, that the previous jobs that you had, right? And you're beating yourself up. And in turn, you're beating others up then because of your own conflict. And when I say that insecurity is the place of all workplace conflict, I've been able to see at the highest level, and it, this is applicable to any income level, whether you are making you know, 40 grand a year, 200 grand a year, or $2 million a year. I've seen it all through uh, the compensation ranks. And people that are insecure, and we all are, I have insecurities. Mm -hmm. I still struggle with them today. Certainly had new insecurities at 50 when I was stepping into industries that I didn't know and investing in companies that the, the people knew more than I did. And I had to rely on them to explain acronyms to me that were new and, you know, all these things <laughs> when I came from an industry that knew so much that I knew so much about. But when we have an insecurity in ourself, um, we project that out. And so many people don't slow down enough to recognize what is the source of where my words are coming from, where my thoughts are coming from. Yes. And oftentimes it's an insecurity. 
and people see the worst side of us and they look at us and we look at a, a situation of, you know, why am I in this conflict? You know, so-and-so is such an ass. They're so hard to work with it when really it's not them. We've done that. We create, we brought out the worst in that human by the way that we interacted with them and the way that we treated them. And so, you know, so many people won't look honestly in the mirror and say, these are the things I'm uncomfortable with. Here's how I think I verbalize them. Here's the actions that I refuse to take to fix them. Here's the, the words that I refuse to say to show others that I'm on a fine line here of knowing what I'm doing, trying to lead, trying not to sound stupid. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm on a fine line here and, and I need some help, but it doesn't mean I'm still not in charge. I still have to make the final decision, but I need input. And that's the mm -hmm. seek to understand, right? And so, uh, you know, we, we need to know our insecurities for sure. We really do. And, you know, if you're, if you're a dad listening and you're in that leadership position, you think this only applies to work. No, it doesn't. Everything that we're talking about today, it applies to your family life as well. The principles that we have brought to the table today on this conversation have been about not just work. And we've talked about this on so many different interviews before and just podcast episodes. What you do at work, what you do at a leadership position, or if you're even just an employee and, you, and you're not a leader, it's the route you take. It's the persona that you give off. It's the words and the insecurities that you breathe that transfer to your home life. So I really want you to take what Johnny's saying today and you know, kind of the story that I'm sharing here. Take a damn hard look in the mirror. Do it because I'm a big believer in introspection, writing speaking out loud, talking to somebody, if it's your wife, a friend, yourself. I have conversations with my shampoo bottle almost every single day. And you know what? Some people think that's weird. I don't. It helps me come through what I need to do. So take those. And like Johnny's been saying, he talked about these new startups, these, these this uneasy route to take away from something that he's known for years, do something brand new. But the principles are all the same. Everything that he's done, it's been the same principles. It's just a new situation. What I'm getting out of your leadership, Johnny, is it's kind of how you treat your family life at home. High standards, no excuses, but we're going to bring in a welcoming, warm environment, and we're going to foster, nurture, and grow. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're saying that, you remind me of a, one of the things I talk about is uh, the work-life balance. And mm. I think that there is not a work-life work slash life. It's just life. Life. Right? So yeah. I'm the same man that I am as a husband, as a dad, with the same heart, the same mind, the same talents, the same insecurities in that space is when I walk into my office every day or <laughs> I walk into a boardroom or I walk into a company, I'm the same guy. And I approach it with the same mind and heart. And so it makes me wonder when you see somebody that's super harsh at work, you wonder the type of mom or dad they are at home right. um, because I think it's one life, right? It's, it's too hard to say that I'm going to work from eight to six. And then when I go home, I'm going to, you know, be, you know, dogging on people all day and, and driving them and creating an uncomfortable space at, at work and then have a mind shift in your drive home that I'm going to, I'm going to be lifting people up and I'm going to create this happy space. Right. So people talk about a work life balance. It's just life. life. And we're the same human in both of those spaces. And of course there's appropriateness that factors into humor, 
words used, all those things. We get all that. But in the one person that we are, we transcend into both of those places. Before we start getting into your book, and I want—I definitely want to touch on what you're doing now with Encourage. The last thing I want to talk about with that is it's massive. It's not the work-life balance. It's just life, man. It's just mm-hmm. life. Like your your life does not revolve around your work. It doesn't. I lived by that philosophy for years, and when I worked for the federal government in the call center, I've talked about this, and we just talked about it on the episode that came out just recently about the five stages of burnout. I shared that story. It's not about that. It's all about you. Like I'm, I know a lot about leadership. I've had many people that I worked with learn from me who were in leadership positions when I was a union steward. And they're like, oh my, I never thought about that way. But you look at me, I'm the quirky, fun, loving, I, I bust jokes. But when it comes down to business, you get that idea. And people learn from, I believe you learn more from humor and you learn more from other people's experiences than you could really in a book or anything other. Exactly. I love to laugh. Um, in in my family life, uh, the five of us, we laugh a lot. Um, and, um, it, it, it really became a place that we wanted home to feel fun for them, fun for their friends to come in, but side note, also fun for us. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, because if we're going to be the adults in the group and we got to kind of create and sustain an environment, make it a fun one. Right. And, and so, Work can be that way as well. And by showing respect to others and care and genuine concern, there's so many good things that we can do. And I, I love to say that there's, you know, no topic at work that is uncomfortable. There's no uncomfortable topic. Because if you deal with anything, Dave, with respect and care and integrity and honesty and willing to say, look, we got to talk about something really, really tough. Let's say an employee made some terrible mistakes at work. Um, we got to talk about something really tough. And what I want to do is try to approach this using the best words and open mm-hmm. my heart up. But I, I'll, I'll tell you at times, <laughs> the, the wrong word might come out. And so if I'm going to say something to you that's going to take you off focus from the matter at hand, which is this offense that you created, you let me know and let me redirect. Because I want to make sure that we end this conversation in a really good place because we need to see this performance improvement change or your employment can't continue. So let's talk about this, all right? And you kind of lay that framework and then you get into the tough topic. From there, you're really lowering sensitivity. You're saying, I might not do this perfectly. I'm telling you that now. This could be difficult, but if we deal with it honestly, with genuine respect for each other, we can get through this and we can come out on the better side of it. I've given that talk Uh, before a conversation. And I've had somebody look at me with ready to put their finger up. And uh, and it's okay to say, okay, cool. We're going to call a timeout here because I see what I put out there, you're not buying. And there's another way this conversation can go. I don't want it to go that way, but I can't tell that you're ready yet to be on board with me for this to go in a good way. So do we need to not have this conversation now? And do you want to come back in 30 minutes or you're an adult, you're ready to engage and we see how it goes. And I've had someone tell me, you know, I just can't figure out what you mean. Fair. Let me explain more. Fair. Or others saying, you know, I, I don't think we can get to a good spot here. Okay. That's okay too. We don't have to hate each other in the process. We don't have to be ugly about it or disrespectful. We could shake hands and separate and, and it's all good. Let's do this the right way. And I think, you know, people avoid conflict so much 
And again, I've reframed thoughts in my mind of what conflict can be. And to me, it's a great opportunity to create something bigger and better um, from something that's a little ugly right now. Right. hundred percent. I couldn't have said that any better. And I love the idea of like just reframing and going in and saying, hey, listen, I'm not perfect at doing this conflict resolution stuff. I understand you're having problems, but there may be something that I say that's wrong. Check me at the door. I'm okay with that. And I think that's a big, big step in integrity itself, doing what's right when nobody's watching and knowing if you do that when nobody's watching and you go in to do it when somebody's watching, just makes things so much easier. That's right. Absolutely, brother. So we've been talking so much about the fact of like leadership and our family life and how that re- how that bleeds over and how to reframe yourself, whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 90, 120, it doesn't matter. You could reframe yourself. You could reframe your mind. You released the book, well, I think a while back ago, right? It was a while back ago? Actually, it's just coming out right now. Just coming so out right brand now. Brand new book. So there you go. It's a brand new book. Life is hard, but it'll be okay. And prior to the recording, we talked about this is 13, basically a 13-step framework of how you took your ideas, your thoughts, and you were able to reframe from very difficult situations to overcome challenges to kind of be where you are now. Can you, can you dive a little bit deeper into that for us? Absolutely. So the book um, was a long time coming, and I really needed a time in my life where I just had some time to dig back to um, a time that really defined us. And so my wife and I were married at 24. At 25, we were ready to be parents. And as with anything else that we had achieved up to that point, our careers were going great. My wife was in the pharmaceutical industry as a sales representative, killing it. She was just awesome. She made more money than we did out of college (laughs) uh, than I did, excuse me. Um, So we saved everything that she made and lived off of what I made. And so financially, life was going really well. um, and, and, And so much of that credit goes to my wife. But Creating a family uh, was nearly impossible for us. And we, after years, um, were not able to have kids and, uh, you know, went through all the treatments and such. And, um, and without giving, you know, too much that's in the book, um, you know, we ultimately uh, got pregnant uh, through in vitro fertilization uh, with triplets um, and had Nicholas, Mary and Peter that passed away um, after they were born and, and our lives were shattered. And, and so you talk about needing to reframe thoughts. Uh, getting out of bed was a struggle. Getting through the funeral was a struggle. Thinking of going back to work was a struggle, Dave. And so what, what we really had to be taught through therapy um, and through some really dark times is that, you know, there's opportunity for post-traumatic growth. There is opportunity to find beauty and gratitude in every situation. And, you know, my wife and I were just talking over the weekend about Nicholas, Mary and Peter again, as we have so many times, they'd be 27 today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've had a lot of talks about what their life would be like and what they would be doing and what it would be like to raise triplets. And, you know, we, we land on the spot that, of course, if the outcome could be different, we would have loved that. We would have loved, of course, that they lived. But knowing that that can't change... If you pose the question to us, do you wish you never had that experience of losing three children? Both of us land on no, um, which sounds so messed up and so crazy. Having loss at that scale and that magnitude define for us what real joy can be when you know real sorrow. It 
cemented our relationship, you know, in year two of our marriage, and now we're on year 31, um, from a perspective that we saw each other hurting so badly that making each other happy really became a priority to us. It changed the husband I was. It changed the dad that I hoped to become because, you know, when you talk about, you know, fatherhood and and there's a big difference between being a dad and being a father and, you know, in the fearless way that you talk about it, that I love so much, um, man, I, I worked for years to become a dad. One of my kids is adopted. Um, I, I don't recall which one is, um, and, uh, you know, I tell them that we've, I've got a file at home and it says it in there who's adopted, <laughs> but I, we, I can't remember. We've had so many things happen to us. Um, and, and I say that because the issue of biology is so immaterial in our lives and in our family. And, and my kids feel the same way. You know, for us, I just had to get to the point where knowing that we couldn't change what happened, I had to use it for my greatest purpose. I had to reframe my thoughts for those that work for me, because going to the cemetery day after day and laying at that gravesite uh, to be close to my kids, which was, as I said earlier, my whole game, my whole dream was being a dad. Um, living that way was really, really hard. And so that didn't work. And and I couldn't forget what happened. And their last breaths and closing their eyes and and passing on, it's forever etched in our minds so why do I need more? Why can't I be thankful for the time that we had? And, and I know that there's perspective here. Um, you know, my oldest son, Bo, was diagnosed with a very life-threatening disease at age four and direct admit to the uh, children's hospital cancer floor, um, a disease called ITP that takes a lot of lives. And his platelets were being destroyed by his antibodies. And wow. he was basically, you know, going to bleed out. And even in that, I thought, gosh, God, not this again. You know, Bo's four years old. I can't lose him. After we got through that in the first year and, and he was, he's in, you know, remission today and, and we always watch for the disease. But, um, you know, I thought, man, I'm so thankful for those four years. I didn't get those four years with Nicholas, Mary, and Peter. Now, granted, the outcome was different and Bo's 26 years old today. And right. um, he's actually my kid that's adopted. I saw a sticky note here on my desk. It reminded me it's him. Um, you figured it out. I figured it out. I cracked the code um, to that Sir Pilla kid. And there's so many cool things about adoption of him processing it uh, through the mindset of a little boy when, you know, he was not even two years old and, you know, his mom was pregnant with his sister, Bella, uh, accidentally. Um, the next two kids were these crazy surprise pregnancies that were crazy hard on my wife. And she spent, you know, five months in bed and, all these other things wow. that, you know, we started framing what adoption meant for Bo um, <clears throat> because that little bugger knew to ask the question at two, you know, I was in mommy's belly. And, and so we would tell him, you know, no, bud, you grew on mommy's heart. And, you know, we said that and we're like, well, what does that mean? I don't know what it means. Honey, did that sound right? Are we allowed to say that as, as parents? I good. mean, <laughs> yeah. What's the rule here? And then our kid's going to think, you know, no, I grew in my mom's heart. He's going to be in high school saying that to people, right? Um, and so, you know, it's reframing thoughts. And we wanted to teach Bo that, you know, biology isn't the issue of what defines our relationship. Because your mom and I don't have a biological connection, thankfully. Um, and, uh, 
you know, and, and we have such immense respect and love for each other. Biology doesn't define this family. And the cool thing for Bella and Stone being born, you know, a couple years right after Bo is that they were born into a family that they didn't know better. So we had to teach them um, of this idea of what adoption was. And so it's, it's framing our thoughts that can work for us because society can have a lot of negative thoughts around adoption. Um, you know, people saying to us, you know, if you can't have one of your own, you know, that's the next best thing to adopt. Like I look at Bo, like he's not my own. Um, you know, what am I doing saving money for his college fund? If he's not my kid, you know, what am I doing? (laughs) You know, so he is my own. Um, I am his real dad. Um, I'm not his biological father, but I am his real dad. And, and so, you know, those words and thoughts that we put around things matter a lot. And for Bo, those thoughts that he had to process being adopted as a two-year-old, five-year-old, 10-year-old, 20-year-old, 25-year-old, 26-year-old, right? It changes with each level of maturity, but we wanted that idea framed in the way of dealing with the reality, much like we dealt with Nicholas, Mary, and Peter dying. It was real. It happened. It was traumatic. It was awful. Um, But there was a lot of beauty in it. At the time that they were alive, we had the presence of mind. We were the happiest people in that hospital. And we had to make decisions of whether we were going to give them care or not and all kinds of horrible decisions. And I refuse to look at their lives defined as a tragedy. Um, I don't think God created them for a tragic purpose. And I don't define their significance on our lives on the time between their birth and death certificate. And not all of that time has to be filled with sadness. And so, you know, my wife and I have, have made a conscious decision, um, much through the help of Dr. Barb Fordyce, uh, one of my closest friends and our psychologist that we worked with 27 years ago. And she and I do a lot of public speaking today, and she's just an amazing psychologist. But cognitive behavioral techniques that she taught us worked. And we saw beauty in that. And we're thankful to be their parents. Um, I don't have regret. Um, cause I can't live that way. That story is absolutely beautiful, man. And I mean, I've shared it on the show before we, we kind of share a similar situation and, you know, we were talking a little bit off the air and I, me and my wife had issues trying to produce as well. And I remember going to the doctors and they give me that cup and you have to take that drive a shame home and, you know, check all that. And I just remember my wife being, why can't I get pregnant? All my friends are having kids. All all we ever wanted to do was be a family. All we ever wanted to do was have kids. And again, we got married at 24 and we've been married now. Oh my God. Eight years, nine years. She's going to kill me, but it's been, it's been almost about 10 years. And we, and and I just remember those same situations. And and I remember when my wife was pregnant and we were so happy and everything was great. And we're, I'm finally going to be a dad. And we, we told everybody and then we got the word that it wasn't going to happen at 12 weeks and we completely shut down. And I, I remember those same feelings like you talked about feeling numb. Is it even right to work? Sick to my stomach. Don't even want to get out of bed. You know, and, and I remember I, I made the wrong mistake of going back to work early thinking that was going to help me and far from it. And that was before I got to my point of wanting, you know, actually talking to somebody and figuring it out. And I, I put the old man head on and said, I just need to work. And I just need to forget about things. Subconsciously, I told myself, I need to just go to work. It's going gonna, it's gonna to leave my mind. I'll be fine. But 
a lot of that story is true. And I, I talk to, you know, people now and they, they asked me a similar question. Like when I brought up this, would you take that back? And I tell them the same thing like you did. No, if I didn't go through, I, I have this firm belief. I'm going to backtrack a bit here. I have this firm belief in the world that the universe gives you what you can handle. No more, no less at any one time. We are all given on this earth for trials, tribulations. If everything was easy, we'd all be happy. World peace would be abundant. We'd all be billionaires. Everything would be great. But it doesn't go that way. For guys like Johnny and I on this episode today, we tell these stories and we tell where we're at today. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. You're, you're so strong. You're so courageous. It's like, no, we're human. We're human beings. All we did was we blocked out the negativity in life. We blocked out all of the all of the thought processes that people tell us like, oh, you went through this tragic experience. You should be feeling this. Well, I did. I still do. There's times where my wife and I, we still talk about what could have been. But what that gave us with our son, Colt, is it gave us that lease to say, you know what? You're my dude. Yep. You are what we need in this world. If we didn't go through what we went through, we wouldn't have you. Now, I'm tearing up just talking about this because it just hits so hard. But but it's so important for you guys listening today that I, I had a friend of mine, a great lieutenant. We talked about this on the show. He just went through something similar like Johnny just did. And I remember we're on the phone for 45 minutes talking. And he goes, you know what pisses me off, Dave, is that we don't talk about this shit. We don't, we don't talk about the stuff that happens in everyday life and we we bottle it all up and we completely just ignore it and we let it go and then we don't bring it up ever again and that just completely bothers me because I'm going through a tough time and nobody wants to talk about it. It's like, you're right. So I didn't even think about talking about this today, Johnny. I mean, I didn't even know this story until we started talking today and it just goes back to that that idea of like the universe sets up everything for a reason. You know, God, the universe, whatever you believe, it sets you up for your path to move forward, to break through the barriers that you're going through and that you're going to, your rock bottom is going to lead to a springboard to a better future. That's right. And you know, Dave, I'm sorry to hear about the miscarriage and, and that you experienced that in you and your wife, but you know, you're, what's so hard about that is that you, you lost a future there, right? It, you, mm -hmm. you didn't lose a past, you lost a future. And, and we went on to miscarry twins after Nicholas, Mary and Peter died um, at about eight and 12 weeks, we m miscarried them separately. And that was a different experience. And, you know, that thought of what could be that isn't going to be. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, Barb, our psychologist helped me with is one time in therapy, I said to her, um, and this Bo at this point was about 10 months old and I was having all this guilt of feeling happy so shortly after, you know, Nicholas, Mary and Peter died, Bo was born about nine months exactly after they died. Wow. So literally he was going to be conceived as they passed. And so I told her one time in therapy, I said, you know, Barb, I, I, I can't let go of them. I won't, I won't let go of them. And it just doesn't feel right. And I'm feeling guilt for this happiness. I feel for Bo right now. And I just won't let go of them. And she said something that changed my life, and it was the first introduction to cognitive reframing. She said, Johnny, you don't have to let go of Nicholas, Mary, and Peter. You can hold on to them, and you are still their father. You can hold on to them, but 
you do need to let go of the dreams that you had for their future on this earth because that will never be. And she said that to me. And I thought, she gave me the permission. I can hold on to them because others, when they did talk, were open up saying, you got to let go. You got to move on. And I don't want to let go. It didn't seem natural to me to let go of my kids. And it's also not natural to go to a cemetery to visit them, but it certainly didn't feel natural to let go. And so just the words that we use. And so she gave me that permission that I don't have to let go. And I haven't. They're 27 years old. We celebrate their birthday every year. Um, we celebrate, we send up two balloons, uh, two blue and one pink balloon, um, up and we did it all when the kids were little today with all of us living in different places. We FaceTime, you know, as Bo left for college, the -hmm. four of us would be home and then Bella left for college stone and Susan and I were home and Bo and Bella would be together because all my kids chose the same college, an amazing school, <laughs> High Point University in North Carolina. And so they were all at the same school and, and we FaceTime and send our balloons up on February 22nd every year. And so we found ways that make it work and, and, and celebrate. And, and that's what this book is all about. This book is the back story is, is the tragedy that happened to us and how we dealt with it. The main story is that it's a book of resilience it's a book of how to find hope and, and how to take post-traumatic growth and, and, and look at those growth opportunities and say, how do I want to grow from this? How do I want to be a better human? This situation was handed to me. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it, but I got it. Now what? And so that's what this book talks about. And it, it even ends with uh, Barb outlining the cognitive reframing techniques that she taught us so that the reader can then kind of take our real life example. And you could take this, these principles and apply it to job loss, financial stress, whatever it is, you know, that thought of one of the chapters is entitled, why not us? Because people would say, especially at the funeral, I'm sure you're wondering why me? We never thought, why me? Why not me? I mean, look at this world. Awful things are happening constantly. I can't be exempt from that. So I think if we go into every day, with the why not me approach, why not me for good, um, that I can deserve this goodness and I, I'm, I'm worthy of it and I worked hard for it, or why not me when something bad happens so that I'm not stuck in this disbelief and shock, but I can accept, yes, we live in a world filled with injustices. As Americans, we, we're, we haven't <laughs> won up on so many more than around the world, right? All so right. you can't live this blessed life here um, even if it's tragic at times or tough at times, because there's so many great success stories of people that come from horrible backgrounds and go on to do amazing things because they're not stuck in the why me. They focus on what they can do to change their circumstance. And those people have inspired me. And and so I look at that and when the bad things have happened and all three of my kids struggle with illnesses today that they'll have for a lifetime. And... um my wife had a double mastectomy in our early 40s. Um, and I think as a result of me personally, my personal thought is all the drugs that I injected into her for so many years um, just never felt right chemically to be altering her body and her hormones that much uh, the way that we did. But um, that's not for me to opine on. I'm not a physician, but um, it just didn't feel right at the time. And so, but she always, she took that, that I can deal with this. And she's, she's dealt with that and move forward. And, and so life is hard, but I'll be okay. Right. That's, that's really what the, the book is meant to, to talk about.
I absolutely love it. And one thing that I want to talk about that post-traumatic growth, I think that is such a massive thing. And we're, I, I just want to put this before we get into Encourage 33. We always uh, you hear everybody talk about post-traumatic stress and going through the stress of life. We'll reframe that. What about the post-traumatic growth that's going to come out of the stress that you're dealing with in life? I think today, especially especially in today's world, we're all anxiety-ridden and we're all depressed-ridden and we're doing so much to just say a happy little pill is going to make me better and really it doesn't doesn't work that way it it helps a bit but it's really the growth that you take out of and say this is what i'm going to do i we easily could have said after our miscarriage you know what we're not going to try for a kid i don't want to go through that hurt again but instead we took that and we said you know what this has given us something that we can never never take for granted ever again and i think that's a big takeaway on that Exactly. Exactly. You know, PTSD is very real. Mm -hmm. It's a psychological principle that is proven. It is real. It is um, lived by certainly soldiers, by anybody that's had any trauma in their lives. It's very real. But the flip side of that is, is the growth opportunity. And, and I'm not saying you immediately get there, Dave, right? There's right. S- stages of grieving, right? And we went through those stages. And when we went through all of those, the anger included, um, you know, we, you got to come out of that with, with growth, with something good um, and that we could bring to others and that we could just survive. And then after you survive, then you realize I can thrive instead of just survive when I take these principles and when I find gratitude, you know, for what I've lived through. And so, um, you know, I say today that the, the man I am, people say about being their authentic self, geez, I don't even have any clue who my authentic self is because I have recognized that I am the sum of the greater parts of the people that I've loved and respected. And that I've seen that your energy that I hear on your podcast, your energy that you've shown today. And and I wish the listeners could see, you know, Mm -hmm. our faces as we're looking at each other and nodding along. There's something that I will take from that and your smile and your energy with me that I chip in there. And and, and there's times that I'm going to want Dave O, I'm going to want to pull on some of him in my mind. And, and that is, you know, what makes us better. So me authentically who I am, I, I couldn't tell you. But I could tell you that the people in the villages that I've been in have made me the man that I am today. And, um, and I want to honor them in a lot of ways by emulating them when I can and taking in what they have more naturally than I do. And I think that's massive. You know, every, you're right. Everybody talks about the authentic self. It's like I've taken bits and pieces of 40, 50, 70, 100 different people that I've known, I've read about. Or I'm continuing to meet on a daily basis. The dads alone that I have talked to on this podcast for the better part of two years, I could tell you to this day, I have taken a piece of information from every single one of them and they have built me growth. I have learned something new. I have reinforced an idea that I have started studying for years. I'm a big believer in taking a rebuilding year. I'm a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan. So I've been rebuilding since 1996. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I'm okay with rebuilding anymore. It's fine. That is right. You take that. You take that and you run with it. You continuously rebuild. And with that, I mean, Johnny, we've been talking so much here. I love this conversation. I I love what's going on. I'm learning. I, I have two pages full of notes from you today just alone. 
we've talked about leadership. We've talked about the family life, how leadership delves into your family life and how you've gone through this terrible circumstance, but you're able to reframe it through post-traumatic growth and, and the amazing book that's coming out and all of this amazing stuff. And on top of that, retiring at 50, reframing your mindset at 50, retiring from a job you've known forever, you decided to start a brand new company over the last few years, Encourage 33. Take us through a, just a little bit of that so any entrepreneurs out there that might be interested in it. All right. So Encourage 33, you know, Dave, for me, it is, you know, really all about, you know, doing things that I am passionate about. Now, I'm not a believer. When I hear young people today, um, sometimes when I'm speaking at college campuses, they say, you know, my professor said that, you know, if, if you're not passionate about it, don't do it. I'm not a huge believer in that because you got bills to pay. Um, you might have some college debt to pay off and you can work your way to get to the spot of doing something that maybe you would do for not getting a paycheck. Maybe. Um, but I think there's something to be learned in every job. And so what I did is I worked those 30 years and I said, you know, now I'm going to do, I'm going to follow my passions. And so, you know, I love to invest in brands um, that I think can make a difference. So, you know, one company recently is uh, called Roulet. Uh, it is a startup um, with two people that I have just such great uh, respect for. Uh, Patrick Candela, who's the CEO of the company, a, a young guy about your age, he's 33 years old, just a rock star career so far, um, worked in uh, big companies, and he's had this amazing idea and partnered with Dr. Serini Pillay, who is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, uh, author, has written incredible books. I'd highly recommend Googling Dr. Serini Pillay. And they've created these uh, virtual reality headsets VR headsets for stress reduction in the workplace. And so, you know, I was excited when I was introduced to them as maybe a company that I I would want to invest in and and maybe our, our business minds and our, our philosophies aligned somebody that knew us both. And it was a great introduction and a meaningful one. You know, I get excited about projects like that. Um, it, it, it's pretty cool to see those and invest in those. And so whether it's in the healthcare space um, and, and creating um, programs that can help people, whether it's with stress, their physical health, um, I have some great um, on my website, Encourage 33, you can see those various companies. Or even if it's fun stuff, um, a college roommate and I have a, uh, uh, about a 70,000 square foot event center in downtown Chicago called Chicago Artifacts. Super cool building. Uh, it's an event center that can hold up to 2,000 people. Um, and so a lot of you know weddings, happy work events, just great celebrations happy there. It's a pretty cool thing. And then he got into the spirits business and uh, drug me along with him. And so I was part of uh, his first brand that he uh, put out there, and uh, which was Angel's Envy, a bourbon. Uh, we sold that off to Bacardi and uh, being partners with Mark Bouchal has been a lot of fun. Um, his latest endeavor, um, we've partnered with Bob Dylan, uh, the singer-songwriter, wow. and, and that is called Heaven's Door. Um, and that uh, whiskey is out on the market today. And, and so, you know, there's a variety of different industries that I'm in, uh, senior living, um, fashion and interior design, um, a men's brand called Dapper Classics, uh, really cool men's accessories. You know, so what I do is do things that I enjoy, but most importantly, so all those brands and all that, put that aside, 
it's with people that I love. It's people that I want to be with. It's people that I get excited about every day to call a partner and a friend and, and, and provide a role um, where I can take my experience combined with their great experience and we can do something better together. So Encourage um, has the investment division, which are all those and, and others that I've talked about, Encourage Leadership, which my book is under that brand. The public speaking I do is under that brand. The board work I do uh, is under that br- brand, excuse me. And then there's Encourage Adoption, where anybody out there that has an adoption organization that they're looking for a speaker, I just love to talk about adoption and the way that you can change two people's lives, uh, the birth mother um, and that baby's life um, for good. And so it's a topic that I'm passionate about. Because it changes families and it could really take a unplanned situation and turn it into something really, really beautiful as opposed to some other alternatives um, that don't give that baby a chance. I love it. I love the work that you're doing, man. I, I We said this off the air and I'm going to keep, keep saying it. I love – I just love everything about you, man. I really do. It's, it's one of those things like I, I strive so hard for myself to – kind of emulate a lot of like what we talked about. I, I see a lot of similarities in kind of how we operate in different ways in our thought processes. And, you know, I always believe that we could always find a relation between the average of 16 different people in this world, the 7.5 billion people in this world. You're the average of at least 16 people, I firmly believe. And that grows to thousands along the road. We're, we're all a little bit of each other along the road. And the, the work that you're doing in helping these startups and helping teach about different ways of reframing adoption and learning about different values of leadership and just building these startups and, and these companies and these philosophies that want to make a impact in this world. It, I, I applaud you a hundred percent brother. I always do. And I, I consider you a brother. And I consider you family now. So congratulations. You're stuck with me. Yeah. I got thank the voice you. for podcast, but I got the face for nothing. So <laughs> I love it. You know, I, I bragged about your voice. I told you, I love your voice. You were doing exactly what God intended when he created that awesome voice of yours. So that is, that is so good. And, you know, I appreciate what you're doing out there for dads. Um, you know, certainly when I was raising my kids, um, that wasn't out there. I had an amazing dad. I had a great role model of a dad. He did work a ton because he was, you know, bringing us from, you know, nothing to, um, stability and, and he worked extremely hard, but I had a dad that told me it was okay to show emotion and, and to cry. And as a full blooded Italian, I, I certainly cry. Um, and, and that I do, uh, without apology. And so what you're doing in creating conversations for other men to hear about just the awesome responsibility it is to be someone's dad and, you know, to do it with intentionality and and love and interest and keen awareness and self-reflection that we are forming the next generation by the way that we interact. And, you know, some people, you know, get to become a dad through having a little bit of fun one night and, and others <laughs> like you and I have, you know, involved doctors and uh, some plastic cups um, and uh, certainly not what you would in intend as a magical romantic moment. Um, but it is, you know, something that nonetheless, when you look at the outcome with that baby, um, if, if you're not up for it, um, you know, there's other people out there that are, and, and, you know, what you're doing is encouraging men, uh, to stand up and be fearless. And I'm, I'm very thankful. I appreciate that, Johnny. Thank you. It's it's a labor of love. And it's like, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's always one of those things like, man, maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I'm not going, maybe I'm not taking that extra step. And then next thing happens, boom, it just blows up. And you're like, 
what the hell just happened? I just sat there and I ebbed and flowed. And I think anything that you could take away from this episode today, it's really life is ebb and flows. And it's when you take that step back and you really reframe where you are from the first leadership position that you were ever in or being that 14 year old girl and just let me be the 14 year old girl, dad, you could, right. you could be the man, you know, I really think that's the, that's the key takeaway in this episode today is knowing that things are going to get jacked up really quickly. And it's knowing that you can improvise, adapt and overcome to any situation. It may not happen immediately and it's not, it's probably not going to happen immediately and that's damn near okay. But what's going to happen is, that's going to set you up for a future that you never expected that you're going to have down the road. So, Johnny. Dave, you're gifted. Um, f- to create that summary for our closure, that was awesome. From going into this conversation, not knowing what my story was, and that's your summary, you're a gifted man. So I, I appreciate what you're doing. I don't have many gifts, but I have some, and I'll take that out there. So, Johnny, as we're closing this out today, where is it that people could find the book if it's uh, pre-ordered now or if it's out after this episode airs? Where could they find that and where can they learn more about Encourage 33 if they're interested? So the book is available on Amazon or other online places the books are sold. Um, so there is a uh, ebook, there is a audio book, and there is, um, of course, the uh, paperback book as well. So all available um, on those sites, Amazon, uh, for sure. And then encourage my website is encourage 33.com. Just simply the word encourage 33.com 33 is our family number. Um, number of my kids I'll use for sports. Um, a lot, a lot of connections to 33. So that's what it's about. Um, and, uh, and again, I appreciate you having me on your show. I'm glad that you came on the show and all the links to that life is hard, but it'll be okay. And encourage 33. You're going to have all the links to that in the description of this episode. So make sure you check that stuff out. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss it. If you got anything on this conversation, I think you're going to want to hit those links. Trust me when I tell you that. So I want to thank you all for listening to this episode of the Fearless Fathers podcast. I want to thank Johnny Serpilla himself for being on the show. It was an absolute honor. It was a great conversation. Probably one of the better conversations that we've had in a very long time. And We've had some damn great conversations over the last few months. Continue to go out there, share this podcast wherever you're at with other dads that might need this information. We got to rethink fatherhood. We got to break those generational traditions that no longer serve us as dads. Let's, let's just stop that crap. We're done with it. So reframe, reset your mind. I don't care if you're 20 years old. I don't care if you're 60 years old. Take that step today. If you know that that voice in the back of your head is telling you to reframe, reset and reframe today. If you can, make sure you smash that like button, that follow button, wherever you are. So you always get new episodes of the podcast. Leave a rating, like, and review. I just like the attention. That's really all that's about. It's not about anything else other than the attention. So until next time, guys, we'll see you and let's rethink fatherhood. Fatherhood.